This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our time together. Father, we're thankful that you have given us your word and that we live in a time, an era, when we have uh, your word in our language, that it's been translated, and many are very good translations and gives us the opportunity to read, to study, and that there are so many other tools that are available for us. And we've got 2,000 years of the development of the understanding of the doctrines and the theology of your word. Father, we live in such a time of rich blessing from your word, but yet also a time when so many take it lightly, trivialize it, and always seem to find something else to do other than study your word. Father, we pray that you challenge us as we continue our study in Proverbs to uh, make sure that your word is a priority to desire above all things and recognize that no matter what we value in this life, the only thing that goes with us when we go into the next is our knowledge from your word, the capacity for righteousness that it gives us, and our understanding of who you are. And that, Father, it is therefore of a grand necessity that we study your word and internalize it, that it shapes all of our thinking and our actions, that we might be prepared for our time in the future, when we as the members of the church will return to rule and reign with our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen. Open your books, your Bibles with me this morning to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses in Proverbs 8. And the emphasis in these last two chapters is on uh, just some added incentives, added challenges to each person to make the Word of God a priority in their life. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, focuses on the fact that the wisdom of God is given in His Word is available to all, that the issue is not a lack of availability, but the issue is volition that even if you're in deepest, darkest, uh, pagan, Africa, South America, Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, wherever it may be, God it has an unspoken, uh, nonverbal witness in his general revelation that is backed by his special revelation within the Word of God, and that those who respond positively to God's unspoken revelation, the uh, revelation that is declared through the heavens, uh, Psalm 19, Romans 1, uh, 18 and following, 
uh, tells us that this his his majesty, his power, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by everyone. And it is through that witness that the offer of wisdom is made. Verse 1 says, wisdom cries out and understanding lifts up her voice. And so we are to respond to that. And the question that may come up in the minds of some is, well, why do we really need to value wisdom? Why is wisdom so significant? Uh, why should we yield to the offer of Lady Wisdom as wisdom is personified in these chapters and not the offer of the adulterous, the unfaithful woman? That's the contrast between chapter 7 and chapters 8 and 9. And so what we see in this section we're looking at this morning is why we should believe in wisdom's claims, why we should make wisdom this overriding priority in our life, something that is more important than anything else that we do in life because it pertains to our relationship with God. And as I've pointed out, as we've made our way through these first nine chapters, is that this is really a series of of ten lessons from the father to the son. It's not just a lesson of a father teaching the son, but this is Solomon teaching and training his son who will be the uh, next ruler of, of Israel. And it is met as a model for other fathers to train their children so that there's a wealth of wise leadership available to lead and rule the nation. And so this is uh, set as a pattern. This book is not just for uh, one type of family, one uh, segment of uh, Israelite culture, but it's for one and all. It is, it is a model for how fathers are to train their children or grandfathers or mothers in, the, in, in, um, in the case of, of some, that there's a, uh, <clears throat> the role of the parent to train the children. And so we come to the last two chapters, chapter eight and nine, which are like closing appendices, reinforcing the values, the teaching that we've already studied in the first uh, first seven chapters. And so in chapter 8, divided into three sections, 1 through 11, 12 to 21, and 22 uh, through 31, then with an epilogue of 32 to 36, we see this emphasis. So the first five verses focused on the availability of wisdom, and verses 6 through 11, the attributes and the value of wisdom. And that theme carries on into verses 12 to 21. We get another look at more of the uh, uh, attributes, the values, the benefits, the blessings that come from wisdom. And the point in all of this is it doesn't, even though the illustrations come from the, uh, relate to the highest levels of leadership in a nation, the king, the ruler, the princes, this would be a reference to uh, we could apply that in our in our culture to all of those who rule in government, including all of the bureaucrats, all of those who serve the nation in one way or the other, that if it applies to them, how much more should it apply to every citizen in the nation? For especially in this country, we live in a nation where it is the ultimate authority in the nation, the ultimate guiding factor in the nation uh, belongs to the people of the nation. And to the degree that the nation is populated by people who exhibit wisdom from the word of God, we will experience tremendous prosperity. 
That's not to say that God's blessing is to be restricted to prosperity, but that's sort of the side effect, the unintended consequence that comes, expansion, growth, uh, blessing that comes as a result of living on the basis of wisdom. And that wisdom applies to anybody, whether they are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, because in many ways, as we'll see in the next section, wisdom is related to those laws, those spiritual laws and, uh, and, and spiritual laws and just economic or social laws that God has built into uh, the framework of creation so that to the degree that anyone lives consistent to the, those absolutes that God built into society and some of which we refer to as Creation ordinances, or another term would be uh, divine institutions. To the degree that we are thinking aligns to that, we're going to experience blessing because we're living in the realm of reality. But when we reject God, when we reject those absolutes and try to redefine uh, life on our own terms, which is the height of arrogance, when we do that, then we get further and further away from the way things really are, and we're living and trying to um, work out our lives on the basis of falsehood. And eventually that leads to a collapse, and it leads to self-destruction. And so this is the offer that the, that the writer of Proverbs says, is to align yourself with wisdom, and you will be blessed. But we know that ultimately blessing comes in a much greater form for as the scripture teaches God recognizes the basic problem that everyone has is the problem of sin. And the problem of sin means that we're all born spiritually dead. Our understanding, Paul says in Ephesians 4, is darkened so that we do not understand reality as it is and we don't want to understand reality as it is. We, as Paul says in Romans uh, 1, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We don't want to know reality as it is. We want to reshape, rethink it on our own. That's the mark of the fool. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the point of that is not that the fool, not claiming that the one who is an atheist is a fool, but that when you, we live on the basis of values predicated on the absence of ultimate accountability and the reality of a creator God, then we're living foolishly, foolishly. And what we learn from Proverbs is the path of the fool is the path of death. And the only solution for life, as we've seen again and again in these Proverbs, the path, the direction of life is the direction of living on the basis of wisdom. Now, just a note of introduction as we get into our first verse here, uh, or actually the concluding verse from the last time we see the value of wisdom. Wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. And so that's the final claim in the opening part of this chapter. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom isn't a lot of education. Wisdom doesn't belong to somebody who has read a lot of books. Wisdom doesn't belong to somebody who just knows a lot of facts. Wisdom is not knowledge. And knowledge, in fact, isn't simply the awareness of information. We live in an era of information overload. 
And people have confused uh, the knowledge of facts with, 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 and the awareness of facts, which is nothing more than awareness of information, and the awareness of data with knowledge. And uh, just knowing information, knowing facts, is not what the Bible refers to as knowledge. Uh, knowledge is something that is able to take the raw data of facts and information and then do something with it. But wisdom takes knowledge to an even greater level, and wisdom in the Scripture is the idea of taking your knowledge base and being able to produce something of aesthetic beauty with what you have, what you know. It is a skill, and it comes only from practice. So knowledge is the with knowledge we can apply the Word of God, but with continuous practice in applying the Word of God, we become skillful at it, and we produce within our spiritual life something that is of beauty, something that has aesthetic value, something that truly brings uh, brings glory to God. So wisdom goes beyond simple knowledge. Wisdom only comes as a result of a person's uh, faithful, consistent walk by the Holy Spirit and as a result of continuous, regular application. The result of living a life of wisdom, then, is something that you can't put on a flowchart. A flowchart is going to describe certain measurable, quantifiable cause and effect relationships. But what happens as you take in the Word of God, and as the Word of God shapes your thinking, your values, and your decisions, is that through the years of growth, something develops within our soul that gives us the ability to make wise decisions. We also, as a result of accumulation of good decisions and better decisions, we find ourselves not so much in in the traps we create for ourselves from sinful decisions to where we have better options in life. And with better options and better choices, then we make wiser decisions. So there are a lot of as, as byproducts to a life of uh, wise, consistent application of God's word, byproducts that you don't uh, chart in a in a direct cause effect manner, and as a result, at the end of a person's life, a person who's dedicated themselves to the study of God's word and to using it and internalizing it, then they've created a life of beauty and a life of value. And this is not necessarily someone who is is out there in front of people. It's not necessarily the pastor. It's not necessarily uh, the obvious leaders in a local church. It's not necessarily the successful leaders that one sees in, uh, in, in business or in government or in the military. It may be somebody who just is a, a, an unseen but powerful force uh, of, of spiritual maturity living out their life in relative obscurity. And which is probably true for the vast majority of mature believers in the church age. Uh, I had the privilege in the years that I grew up of knowing quite a few people who would fit that category. There's always one or two that come to my mind. A couple of them were pastors, Christian leaders, but some of them were just everyday, faithful, ordinary believers, uh, mothers, housewives, uh, dads who just were faithful. They had jobs. They, they were plumbers, electricians, whatever. They did their job faithfully, but the Word of God 
was a vibrant part of their life. It was the, the warp and woof of everything that they did. And they just, you, you, when you were in their presence, it, they, they just so, you just sort of knew that, that the, their walk with the Lord Jesus Christ was almost palpable, almost something, uh, something that you could, you could measure. And you saw that at times, you got a glimpse of that in just decisions that they made under stress or in difficult times, and you just wondered how in the world did they, did they reach that point, uh, where they're calm, relaxed, think clearly, objectively, and are able to make very smart decisions under pressure. And it came from years of making the Word of God a priority, not just going to church every time they could, not just listening to the teaching of the Word, but going beyond that to where they were reading the Bible, they were listening, they were studying on a regular basis. It was it was the greatest priority uh, in their life. Now, as we go through this section, the emphasis in the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 11, was on the offer of wisdom. Wisdom is available to one and all. It doesn't matter what your uh, background is, doesn't matter what your IQ is, it doesn't matter what your station in life is. In fact, when I teach this, sometimes people come and they hear me teach and I try to I teach at different levels for different people at different times. Sometimes we get into some real uh, detailed, intricate type of studies like we've done the past few weeks in Romans on Thursday night. Other times it's a little more general. But I'm always reminded of this one lady who came to the church at Pre- when I was up at Preston City Bible Church. And she she had a, a background that didn't provide her with a lot of education. I'm not even sure if she graduated from high school. She had uh, she just came from probably the lowest socioeconomic levels, spent most of her adult life uh, on uh, on some kind of a government welfare system. Her her husband has been uh, debilitated through various uh, various different things, hasn't been able to work. But for some reason, she just sort of latched on to the teaching of the word. And uh, she came and visited the church and didn't have a lot of, uh, didn't have a great social skill set, uh, didn't look very attractive, wasn't uh, the kind of person that, that attracted other people to her. But she was there every single night. And uh, over the years, she just took in the word and it's just been amazing to watch how she has uh, developed spiritually in that congregation. In fact, she's probably brought more visitors and evangelized more people than anybody else in that congregation, maybe than any four or five other people in that congregation. And uh, she just sort of looks like, a, you know, you know, a barnacle on the keel of a ship. She's just not the kind of person you're going to look to, but she's the kind of person who puts her value on that which has eternal beauty and eternal value. And that's what wisdom is. But it comes only from being faithful in terms of your dedication to the study and internalization of the word. So wisdom cries out. And then in verses 12 through 21, we see this emphasis on the characteristics and qualities of wisdom. Verse 12 says, I wisdom dwell with prudence. And find out knowledge and discretion. 
Now, you can get a general sense of what is being said here from looking at the New King James translation, but there's a, there's a little bit more to it than just what appears on the surface, and I think we can enhance the translation a little bit. One thing we need to realize here is there's going to be certain names or labels or adjectives, nouns, uh, applied to wisdom here, prudence, knowledge, discretion, and we need to understand those things because they, in, in the Bible, uh, a name isn't just a label. It says something about the uh, internal character and attribute of a thing. So the, the I here is a personification of wisdom. Uh, this is just a literary device that's used by a writer in order to capture somebody's attention rather than sitting down and writing sort of a dry legal treatise on wisdom. You take the, 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 the character of wisdom and you personify it as a person. Now, it's not a person. It's not someone separate from God. It is a personification of one of the attributes of God's omniscience. God knows everything, but that's not just a sort of a raw academic knowledge. It is a knowledge of all of the intricacies, all of the details, all the interrelationships and correlations of every piece of minute data governing all of the all of the universe in such a way that when God created everything, it was a work of incredible, awesome beauty. So wisdom really relates to that area of thought that uh, we usually don't spend a lot of time uh, discussing in a lot of Christian circles, and that's aesthetics, the value of beauty. But that's exactly what we see in God. Whenever God creates anything, it's not only functional, it's beautiful. You know, so often we tend to go to form or function, and we want something that looks wonderful, but it may not have a lot of functionality or it has great functionality, but it's not beautiful. But God, uh, God's creation has perfect form or functionality, uh, I mean, perfect form or beauty, and then also perfect functionality. And so we see this personification of wisdom because it, it dramatizes the whole concept of wisdom and gives us a, a sense of uh, that it's more than just uh, some of the parts. There's something glorious and beautiful here. And so we see some of the associations with, uh, with, with wisdom. Uh, some other verses that give us the same correlations, the same connections, Proverbs 4, uh, 5 through 8 is just one of them. There are other passages that uh, say the uh, very, very uh, similar things. For, but we'll just look at 4, 5 through 8. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Again, this is the father telling the son, whatever you do, acquire this. This needs to be a part of your uh your, 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 all of the baggage that you have in life, everything that you know. Uh, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget, nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. So wisdom has a, a, an aspect that keeps us. When we're walking in wisdom, we're not going to make stupid, foolish decisions that end up bringing uh, self-destruction or calamity or misery in our lives. Wisdom protects her. He says, love her. She will keep you, guard you, or protect you. Again, those two words, preserve and keep, in the Hebrew are both are synonyms. Wisdom is the principal thing. 
No matter what you may think is the main thing in life, it's not. Wisdom is the main thing in life. Wisdom isn't just knowing God's Word. Wisdom isn't simply applying God's Word. Wisdom is living well on the basis of your application of God's Word. That's what Proverbs is all about. It's about living well. It's about having a rich, full life, but it only comes on that basis of wisdom. So verse 7 says, therefore, get wisdom, and in all you're getting, get understanding. Wisdom and understanding are often used by the uh, in poetry as, as uh, one-to-one synonyms. Verse 8, exalt her. She will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. These are the side effects of wisdom, that you will gain honor, respect, uh, value, because of the word of God in your life. So in verse 12, we read that what is associated with wisdom is prudence. But the word that's used there, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, is the Hebrew word shikan. We know it in a different form of the word. When we refer to the the physical glory of God, we refer to it as the shekinah. The shekinah, it's almost a a redundancy to say Shekinah glory. Shekinah is from the uh, verb meaning to dwell uh, or to tabernacle, to live, to abide, to have intimate fellowship with someone. And so you see this intimacy, this closeness, two sides of the same coin between wisdom and prudence. The word for prudence is the word orma, and orma is related etymologically to a different form, that we find a noun form in Genesis 3 talking about the serpent as the craftiest creature in the garden. So it has the, the broad spectrum of meaning, uh, shrewd, cunning, uh, can have a negative sense of somebody who's full of guile or is uh, crafty in a negative sense or someone who is prudent. Now, the idea of, of being prudent is the idea of someone who has sharp powers of judgment, they're astute, they're clever and ingenious. They can look at a situation and come up with, with alternative ways of handling one than just what appears on the surface. I'm always amazed at how I watch some people in a debate, and rather than getting emotional and upset with their opponent, they list, they're listening so carefully that they're able to turn what the opponent said back on them in a very skillful, crafty way. They're clever at the way they approach problems in life, and they don't just take the, the path that is uh, the most uh, superficial. And so that's the idea here. Wisdom is entwined with prudence, with sort of a, a skillful, astute way of facing and handling uh, the details of life. But it's not just ingenuity in and of itself. It's an ingenuity that comes from the Word of God. And, of course, in this church age, we have God the Holy Spirit who helps, enables, prompts, and leads us in the application of God's Word. So wisdom is uh, profoundly, intimately associated with uh, with prudence. And also, it's not just finding out. That has the idea of discovery, but it, it, it and the the nuance that we have here in the in the Hebrew is the idea of obtaining or in close also in close association with knowledge and discretion. Uh, we see that this is uh, there's a there's a synonymous parallelism here that wisdom dwells with prudence. Now you have to have another verb to. Uh, 
that's a synonym for dwell because prudence is parallel to knowledge and discretion. So the word uh, matzah here that means find out or discover is really the idea of, of owning or finding or making something part of what you are. So wisdom also has as part of its components uh, knowledge and discretion. And we see this emphasis on knowledge and discretion. Uh, in fact, the way it's structured in the Hebrew, it's almost as if they're, they're one's an adjective of the other. It's a, dis, a discretionary knowledge, as it were. It's not just two separate things. It's a kind of knowledge. It has discretion in its use and application. We find the same kind of thing at the very introduction of Proverbs that where Solomon is stating the purpose in the second verse stating the purpose. He says that these Proverbs are to give prudence to the simple. The simple is often presented as a person who's so open-minded they'll just suck up anything, and they need prudence. They need discretion. They need uh, some uh, skill at... Uh, at making decisions, some, uh, some, uh, they, they need to be a little more astute and clever in the way they approach life. And to the young man, it gives, once again, this discretionary knowledge, same kind of construction. So this is our introduction of these characteristics, three characteristics of wisdom, uh, prudence, and uh, knowledge and discretion, or we could say just prudence and discretionary knowledge. And then we immediately go into a fundamental factor for any the acquisition of any wisdom, and that is the fear of the Lord. Now, this word, fear of the Lord, is another one of those words that has a range of meanings. That's one of the difficulties that uh, an interpreter faces in in interpreting poetry is that words can have a broad range of meaning and just uh, in, in more direct literature, but such as legal literature, historical literature, instructions, something like that. But when you take it and you place those words within poetry, then they're going to have a more a, a broader sense of meaning because often the words are chosen by the uh, writer in order to pick up certain other shades of meanings that will also be brought to the mind of the writer or just because they fit within the context a little more because of rhythm and meter or things of that nature. Now, the word fear often comes to our mind. We think of being afraid, being being scared. But that's not the idea in present in fear here. Another sense of fear is the idea of awe, the sense of respect, but it's it's not just simply awe and respect because there is sort of a uh, a tinge of frightfulness surrounding that sense of, of fear. For example, you may reflect upon the fact when you were a child that uh, I know in my house, if I heard my mother say, "Just wait till your father comes home," there's a sense of uh, fear there. Uh, there's a recognition that he's the ultimate authority and his decision counts. And if I violate his rules, then my life is in serious jeopardy. And so there's a recognition when we look at this sense of the fear of the Lord that, that it includes the idea of being oriented to the authority of God in our life. We're not living apart from that. And that, that idea runs through this particular uh, section that that authority orientation to God is fundamental to 
leadership. And when I say leadership, you may think, well, I don't really have a leadership role. Well, everybody can have a leadership role. It depends on your environment. Maybe it's not a large leadership role. Maybe you are just a member of some other people who are working on, working at a job. But the way in which you conduct yourself at work, the way you do your job, the way you conduct your life is a form of leadership. You can be an example to others. You can encourage others. You can be a leader in the home as a father, as a mother, as a husband, as a wife. You can have a leadership position uh, just among your peers. You can have leadership position in a local church. You can have an informal or formal leadership position. You can have a uh, leadership position in your work, in government, in the military, uh, whatever it is, everybody, especially Christians, should function in some form of leadership at some level, and we have the, the, the playbook to, to pattern our leadership after from the Word of God. But you can't be a good leader unless you are one who can submit to authority. Because if you can't submit to authority, then you can't submit to those who are over you. And those who can't submit to authority are arrogant and prideful. And that always leads to destruction. And so the starting point of being able to function well in wisdom is to recognize the authority of God. This is why in a few verses from now we'll look at leadership. I mean, kings reign and rulers decree justice, princes rule and nobles, all the judges of the earth. See, it starts with authority orientation uh, toward God. Now, what exactly does that mean? How does that look? Well, there's a couple of several verses. I want to go over the verses, and then we'll summarize the lessons that are taught in these verses. Proverbs eight, thir- uh, excuse me, Proverbs one seven gives us an opening statement on the fear, fear of the Lord as the foundation for assimilating the truths of Proverbs. Verse seven says, "The fear of the Lord is the." Beginning, it's the starting point of knowledge, not just an awareness of facts, but really knowing and understanding life based on God's revelation. So you have to submit to God's authority and to his word. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice the contrary. There's no middle way. You're either on the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. The path of wisdom leads to life, the path of foolishness to death. The fool is arrogant, so he thinks he knows it all. He doesn't need God's authority instructing him. He knows the best way to live his life, and he doesn't really need God or the Bible or you Christians. Thank you very much. Uh, Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, reiterating that principle. Not just the beginning of of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, knowledge of God is fundamental to everything else in life. But we live in a world today that sort of relegated the knowledge of God, the study of theology, the study of the Bible to some sort of secondary uh, aspect of our life. We really need to know uh, the area of our career. We need to know that which our teachers are telling us we need to know. We need to know the other other things we're involved in in life. That's the knowledge we need to know because that has a has an immediate value to us. If we don't know what we need to know for our work, if we don't know what we need to know for school, then then we're going to fail. But what the Bible says is you can know all that and be a failure. Because if you know everything there is to know in life, but you don't know God, then it's irre- all that other knowledge is irrelevant. 
What matters first and foremost is your knowledge of God because that's going to give shape and meaning and value to everything else that you know. And that's sort of the glue that ties everything together and gives meaning to every other fact. And without it, all of those other facts, all that other knowledge is just empty knowledge. So the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Job 28, 28 says, To man, God said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. So there's an ethical aspect to wisdom because it makes choices. That It chooses that which is righteous and just, and it avoids and, and uh, rejects that which is evil. Uh, Psalm 19.9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It has an eter- that which it, it, it results in has an eternal, uh, has eternal value and significance. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Again, emphasizing that ethical aspect to the fear of the Lord. Psalm 34.11, come you children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It is something we learn, something that grows and develops over time. Psalm 111, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a line stated numerous times. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Again, emphasizing there's an ethical dimension to wisdom in terms of obedience. Now, when we look at this, I'm going to give you about... Seven points here on the fear of the Lord. First of all, defining it is so important. Fear of the Lord, first of all, is a profound respect and awe for God's person. We have to know him. The only way you can know God is to know his word. So that means we have to elevate the knowledge of his word. And that's not just limited to coming to uh, Bible class, coming to church. It means reading the Bible, not being biblically illiterate. But knowing uh, the people in the Bible, knowing the events in the Bible, knowing the places in the, in the Bible, because if you don't know the basic facts of the Bible, then you can't ever get beyond that to really get to know God. The ultimate uh, issue in studying and knowing the Bible is not to know and study the Bible. It's That's the path to knowing God. That's the goal is to know God and have a intimate relationship with God. But the only way we can do that is to know his word because that's where he's revealed himself to us. And if we don't learn and know his word so that we can think his word and in terms of his word all the time, then we're never really going to get to know God. We may know a few things about God, but we won't develop much of a relationship with him. So... The fear of the Lord is a profound respect and awe for God's person, especially as righteous judge whose will and ways must be followed or face serious consequences. That there are negative consequences. We may not, we may make foolish decisions today, but it may be five, six, ten years down the road before we uh, reap the consequences of those foolish decisions. So we need to live each day in light of uh, God's word. So the first point, just defining the fear of the Lord. Second point, this respect for power and the authority of God is a manifestation of humility and submission to God. And without humility, we can't achieve anything of value in life. 
And if you don't have humility and you're operating on pride, then sooner or later, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, things can just start falling apart on you. It's interesting that the application of this is made to uh, political rulers in verses uh, 15 and 16. And we often see displays through, through history and in our own time of leadership, political leadership that has become so full of itself and so arrogant that it begins to write its own laws. We saw that with the scandals in the Nixon administration with, uh, with Watergate. We saw that in a few other examples with, uh, uh, other scandals that popped up over the years and in the 80s and 90s. We see it again right now that, that eventually when you're operating on arrogance and the sense that you are the ultimate authority, the wheels are going to come off. And we're seeing that in a number of these scandals that are hitting the administration today. It's, there's a culture in our world today, in our generation of narcissism. And it's not just a problem that's affecting one party in Washington, they just happen to be the party in power right now, but it's a, it, it seriously affects the other party just as much because that's the culture of this country. We no longer have a co- country that we can say that the United States of America is marked by a people who are concerned about the fear of the Lord. That was true 100 to 150, 200 years ago. It's not true anymore. And it doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. If you're arrogant, you're in, in a mode of self-destruction, and sooner or later things will start to fall apart because arrogance can't last and it can't produce life. And it, it leads to a tremendous amount of collateral damage to those who are under your leadership, whether that's political or whether it's in business or whether it's in education or whatever it might be. And it's not just a problem that affects us, but it damages those around us. We have to have humility. Uh, you've often heard it said that you can't be a, a good leader unless you're a good follower. That's what's embedded in that cliche, is that you cannot be a good leader without humility because everybody is under authority. All the way up the line, everybody's under the, under authority, and if it's not another human authority, then it's the authority of God. But everybody's under authority. The third point on the fear of the Lord is that what we see here is a contrast uh, of the fear of the Lord with arrogant rejection and disrespect for God's teaching and instruction. And we've seen that more and more in our culture. Just think over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of atheists really come out of the closet. And, and express in ways they never would have before their hostility and anger towards Christians. On this last trip I took to Israel, one of the uh, participants on the, on the trip is a uh, young state senator from, uh, from Arkansas. And he's been elected twice to the uh, state senate in Arkansas. His name's Jason Rapert. And Jason told me, and he's authored several uh, very conservative bills that have passed through the Arkansas legislature. And he, he told me, he said, Robbie, he said, you cannot even imagine the vile hatred that many people in the United States bear toward us just because we're Christians. They hate us with every ounce of their being. They don't want to hear from us. They don't want to know we're there. As far as they're concerned, we are the cancer 
on the body politic in the United States, and we are the greatest enemy this country faces. He says, I get piles and piles of, of hate mail and hate email. In fact, it got so bad that they had to secretly remove his family from the state for a short time just to keep them under protection. That is a rude awakening for many of us, that there are many segments that are so vocal now in this culture, and they pin all the problems on you and I because we're Christians and we believe in absolutes. Now, that shouldn't surprise you because this is exactly what the Lord said. The Lord did everything right, and look what they did to him. You and I don't do everything right, but guess what? It's going to be just as bad if there's no restraint of government and we don't follow the rule of law. So there's a rise in rejection and disrespect for God's teaching and instruction in this country. The fourth thing about the fear of the Lord is it emphasizes the immediate necessity of knowing God's word in contrast to an attitude that may range from something as benign as just ignoring God's word. I'm just too busy to go to Bible class. I'm just too busy to get up in the morning. It's raining. I, 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 I may not be able to get there. There may be a problem. Uh, whatever it is, we find excuses. It's a lot like dieting and exercise. You find easy excuses. Oh, I'll just eat that piece of chocolate cake today or well, I've just got a little bit too much to do. I won't walk this morning. I'll do it this afternoon. And then something else comes up in the afternoon. And three or four weeks later, we go, you know, I've been trying to start this diet program or exercise program. I'm not just there. I've been trying to start studying the Bible for 40 years. Maybe one day I'll actually read it. I'm not going to embarrass anybody by saying, asking how many people have just read the whole Bible through once in their lifetime. I mean, the, the, the statistics that we see uh, in various polls today are appalling. A uh, hundred years ago, that, that was radically different. People read their Bible, and they read it as a family. And many times they would, they, there were homes where every night after dinner, the family sitting around the table, would the, the father would read through a chapter of the Scripture, and they would read through the Bible. They were biblically literate and biblically knowledgeable. And you can't get wise if you're biblically illiterate. Okay, the fifth point, God's wisdom makes an ethical demand upon our lives. It's not just academic knowledge or abstract knowledge, but there's a demand to do it right. There's a demand for righteousness and to avoid evil. We have to choose to obey him and follow the paths of righteousness and depart and reject evil. Sixth point, evil is not only a synonym for sin, but it also, because that's what we see in the passage, we see this rejection of evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Evil is not just a synonym for sin, but it includes also superficially good deeds. Much evil is wrapped in the cloak of humanitarian ideals. We're going to do good for people. And, and you see things like socialism. We just want everybody to have equal equality in everything and so that everybody has the same health care. And It sounds so good in the abstract, but it's evil because it can never happen, because it doesn't take into account that people are, are, are sinners and, and total depravity. Seventh point, the second line in verse 13 Pride and arrogance in the evil way. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Evil is then defined in the next line. Pride and arrogance and the evil path. 
So the second line moves from the uh, uh, arrogance of evil to the perverse mouth. See, talking about it. And how much do we see this today? We see people talking about and promoting ideas uh, based on twisted logic, and they reject all of the basic fundamentals uh, of, of, the, of establishment truth that God has, has set forth, uh, rejecting uh, marriage, rejecting family, rejecting the concepts of sin, rejecting concepts of personal responsibility and, and accountability. And so this is, this is part of the perverse mouth. The perverse mouth is something that twists that which the, the absolute. And so what they're doing is they're constructing arguments and rationales in order to, to defend an evil course of action. Now then we come to verse uh, 14. Verse 14 says, counsel is mine. So wisdom claims to be the source of counsel. The wisdom that comes from God's word, God's word is a sense of, of counsel. Now, counsel is directive. By that, I mean it has a sense of purpose. I'll show you the uh, words in the text, Hebrew words in the text in a minute. Counsel is mind and sound wisdom or uh, strong wisdom. It would be the idea there in the second part. It's not the word hokma we studied, but it's an intensification of that of that idea. And wisdom says, "I am understanding, and I have strength." So uh, these are the Hebrew words. Uh, counsel has the idea of pur- purpose, directing somebody in a course of action. Uh, so the uh, wisdom says, counsel is mine. It's a, the, the structure of the, of the Hebrew text there is, is, it's, it's really saying, to me is counsel. I own counsel. I am counsel. Uh, counsel is mine and sound, uh, sound wisdom. And this sound wisdom is the idea of, uh, that which brings about profit in life. Understanding, of course, we've studied before. It's the idea of, of making decisions, being able to make wise choices between competing options. And then might is an interesting word here because it's the word gevura, uh, 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 which is, we know a noun form, the gebor, uh, uh, which is a word for a warrior or strength or power. It's a military word. And so it has that idea of something that gives power and strength to a person's life, uh, the idea of, of, of resourcefulness. So there's a claim here that, that it's directive, it gives purpose and significance to life, uh, understanding, decision-making uh, capability, as well as power. Now that leads to its application. Uh, by me, notice verse 15 and 8, 16 both start with this instrumental uh, preposition, by me, by me, by me, kings reign, by me, princes rule. In other words, wisdom is supposed to be the basis for leadership in the, in, in the government realm as well as in the personal realm. Uh, it just because it, the illustration here is from the uh, rule of kings doesn't mean it doesn't apply to all other areas of rule and judgment. And so this is how we are to live. This is the basis for integrity and leadership. But when you have a culture 
which happened many times in Israel, both in the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, where they rejected the wisdom of God's word, as Solomon himself did later on in his life. The result was a collapse of government, and it brought pain and misery in the life of the people. They lost uh, prosperity. They lost uh, the, 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 the value of life, the, the, the value of their monetary system collapsed. All of these things, it brought military defeat in many cases and eventually culminated in the destruction of both the northern and southern kingdoms through invasion because they chose the path uh, of foolishness. And in verse 17, wisdom says, I love those who love me. There is a, a, a mutually beneficial uh, relationship here, and this is, this is something that we find in some other examples uh, of, of Scripture where God says, if you seek me, I will, I will provide for you. So we, we are to love or desire uh, wisdom, and in response, wisdom will bring benefits to us. This is seen in the parallel. Those who seek me diligently, and that, that idea is making it a priority, seeking it with energy, seeking it with effort, uh, making a sacrifice in order to gain uh, the wisdom. And the result is, uh, the wisdom says, that the, the byproduct is riches and honor are with me. Now, this isn't limited to physical financial gain. This is the wealth of life. And there are people who have little in life but great capacity for life. And they have, they have much, even though physically and materially they have little, because of their relationship with God and because their understanding of how they fit within God's plan. They have riches that are not measured empirically. These are spiritual riches, enduring righteousness, riches in righteousness, that which goes on into eternity the rewards that are ours as growing, mature believers who have victory in this life. And then wisdom begins to conclude by saying, my fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold. Fine gold is refined gold. It, it is gold without the dross or the impurities. It is the most valuable gold. Gold, And so the value of living a wise life is of... Uh, 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 it cannot be measured. It is greater than any physical richness. And that's the comparison here is that as much wealth as you could accumulate materially or physically, the value of wisdom is even more. And then we see the ethical dimension brought in in verse 20. I traverse the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. This is a figurative way of saying that the way of wisdom is governed by righteousness. Righteousness conforms to the character of God, the standard of, of God. And so wisdom is that which conforms to righteousness, and it produces justice. Justice is the application of God's righteousness. And this leads to the result. The result for those who pursue wisdom is that wisdom will cause those who love me to inherit or to possess wealth. This is eternal uh, wealth and value, pursuing that which has uh, eternal value and reaps great rewards uh, in eternity. 
And this is a result of spiritual maturity. And that's the challenge that we've seen again and again through Proverbs, is are we going to listen to the cry of the fool, the attraction of the adulterous woman by application, the, the, the temptation to be unfaithful to God, or are we going to pursue the woman, the lady of wisdom, uh, which only comes from knowing God's word, applying it in our life consistently over and over, where through God the Holy Spirit we develop a skill in applying God's word which reaps consequences in terms of our own spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon these things today, to be reminded of the the significance of your word, the priority, the value of putting your word and the knowledge of your word ahead of everything else, that that we may gain the whole world, but if we have not grown spiritually, if we have not studied your word, if that has not been at the very core of everything else, then everything else ends up being worthless. It may give us stimulation for the immediate time, but it has no eternal value. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. He paid the, He took upon himself the sin, the sin penalty for the entire world so that the issue is no longer what we've done. The issue is what we believe. The issue is do we trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation or are we dependent upon something else? Scripture says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When asked by the Philippian jailer how he could be saved, Paul said simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We pray that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would, you would take this opportunity to trust in him. The second you you think, the second you realize in your soul that you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, at that instant you're saved. You're a new creature in Christ. Your salvation can never be lost, and you have a secure eternal destiny with God. So the issue begins. What will you do with this new life? Are you going to pursue wisdom or follow the path of the fool? Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied today and in this series on Proverbs, that we might value wisdom and seek it with our whole heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.